Welcome everybody, it's great, it's great to be here again today and see f- some familiar faces, a warm welcome from uh, Hazelmere site and um, we're continuing our series this morning, we've had three, uh, two so far and this is third in the series and the series is on more and we're really, for any visitors here today, we're really encouraging the church of both sides to really press into more of God and uh, the first week we heard about more power And last week we heard of more love, and today we're hearing about more peace. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well. So this is the words of Paul in his letter to the church in Philippi. Great. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, dear, and I plead with Sintike to be the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine from work sent an email to the whole company. It was a photograph of her front garden. She's based in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, in the USA. And it was right in the middle of the polar vortex And she sent this photo of her front garden completely covered in snow and also a screenshot of the temperature on her phone. And it said minus 33 degrees feels like minus 43 degrees. And you've probably seen the footage of people throwing out boiling water and it vaporising. There's one photo I saw of people's jeans standing up in a garden. It's just brilliant, incredible. Minus 43 degrees feel like. So thermometers have been very busy uh, in the US and the UK actually recently. And as we know, thermometers measure temperature. But imagine for a moment that there was something called, a machine called a worryometer. Just bear with me here. Go with me on this one. There's something called a worryometer. And a worryometer obviously measures the level of worry that you have. And the measures are from naught, which is just no worry at all, chilled out, to 10, which is you're worried that you're worried. You're so worried. And you've got lots of worries. I wonder where you would measure yourself this morning on the worryometer. Maybe as you come in today and as you sit here this morning, actually the reality is you are about an an 8 to a 10 on the worryometer. You have genuine worries perhaps about your health, um, about finances, about work or lack of work, worries about relationships, perhaps worries about broken relationships, worries about your children, just worries in life. And, you know, when you're asked what keeps you awake at night, you know exactly what it is that keeps you awake at night. You're kind of 8 to 10 on that 
worryometer, you're worried about the future, and maybe even you're worried about your past. Or maybe actually you'd say that I'm really between a four and a seven. Yes, I have worries in life, I have concerns, it kind of peaks and troughs. Sometimes there's real things that concern me, and other times I'm not so worried, so it's manageable. I'd say I'm between a kind of four or a seven. Or maybe actually you'd say, you know, I'm, I'm between a kind of naught and a, and a three, really. You know, Mr. or Mrs. chilled out. So when you go shopping and you've just put all of your shopping through the self-service till and the computer says, please place the item in the bagging area and you've already placed the item in the bagging area, you're the one that's just, whatever, that's no problem. Hey, look, it's really funny. It's asked me to place the item in the bagging area. I've already done it. Yes, can you come over here, please? Look at this. Just really, really chilled out and relaxed. Nothing at all flusters you. It's a really, uh, probably my, one of my famous quotes on this kind of type of serenity goes something like this. If you can remain calm when everyone else around you is panicking, if you can keep smiling while everyone else around you is frowning, if you can stay still while everyone else is running away, you've clearly misunderstood the gravity of the situation. <laughs> I love that quote. But, but you know, the reality is we all have worries in life. We all have things that cause us to worry. A survey conducted by the Office of National Statistics found that nearly 21% of people rate their anxiety levels at 6 or more out of 10 And in a recent Prince's Trust survey, this is over 2,000 young people aged between 16 and 25, 61% of young people said they regularly feel stressed. 27% say they feel hopeless on a regular basis. That's a really sad statistic, I think. And let's face it, in this world there is a lot to worry about. Turn on the news for five minutes and... It's a worrying place. There's not much peace in this world. There's wars, there's famine, there's terrible human suffering. As we've heard recently, the knife crime in London, that's a real worry, the increase in knife crime, people dying on the streets. And of course, dare I mention it, the worry and the concern currently uh, about deal or no deal, and that's all I'm going to mention of it, by the way. You know, the world today, it's fair to say, is a worrying place to be. But worry, anxiety, this isn't a 21st century Western world problem. Sigmund Freud wrote the book, The Problem of Anxiety, in 1936. The Dutch philosopher Spinoza highlighted our enslavement to what he called dread in his writings in the 1600s. And Paul here writes these words, do not be anxious about anything, to the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago. And we read even before that in the book of Proverbs, 950 to 700 BC, an anxious heart weighs a man down. See, the human race has been under a cloud of worry and anxiety since the relationship between God and man was broken in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, we read, The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
we see Adam and Eve here hiding and afraid. They're worried. Worry entered the human race at that point, and we have been worried ever since. The peace with God, the shalom, which means that all is well, all is as it should be. That peace with God was broken as Adam sinned. And forever since, we have been a worried race. But the good news, of course, is that God came to restore that peace. He came to restore our relationship with him through Jesus Christ on the cross. That we could enjoy again peace with him and freedom from fear and worry. God is referred to in the Bible as the God of peace. In Thessalonians we read, may the God of peace give you peace. Jesus in Isaiah 6 is referred to as the Prince of Peace. And we read in Ephesians 6 that the gospel is the gospel of peace. So God is a God of power as we've heard and he's a God of love. But he's also a God of peace. It's his characteristic. He is a God of peace. He's at peace now. He is a God of peace. So this morning I want to really look at what Paul says about how we can receive more of God's peace. And I want to focus on three key areas. Peace with God, peace with each other, and importantly, peace with ourselves. Now, the first point to make is that peace does not mean an absence of trouble. Peace with God does not mean an absence of trouble. See, we hear of peace treaties. When we think of the word peace, we hear of peace treaties and Trump and Young meeting to talk about world peace and UN peacekeepers and the Nobel Peace Prize. And we can actually think that peace equals an absence of war. The dictionary definition of peace is the absence of conflict. But Jesus said, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives peace. In fact, in John 16, Jesus talks about trouble and peace in the same sentence. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And then he says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So the peace of God is not a peace that replaces trouble and anxiety and things that there may be in our lives to worry about. The peace of God is a supernatural peace in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of the things that make us worried. In fact, when we read Paul and the context around Paul writing this letter to the church in Philippi, he's facing many troubles. He's in a Roman jail. He's probably tied to and chained to a jailer. He writes in chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So he's got trouble on the inside, he's got people trying to cause him trouble on the outside, and he's also got troubling pastoral issues to deal with. He, we, he, you know, as we've just read, I plead with Judea and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. This is troubling him, there's an argument going on in the church. And it's troubling him, it's causing him grief because that, that, you know, this, this isn't good, just be of one mind. And he's, he's heard about this constant dispute that these two ladies are having. 
So he's got a lot to be actually on the face of it worried about, as has the church in Philippi. Philippi was a, a Roman city, it was a very wealthy Roman city, and we hear in Acts that the, the, the Christian Paul and Silas were treated pretty brutally in Philippi. Paul cast out this demon from a slave girl, it ruined the owner's business, they were dragged into the temple area, in, into the, the centre of the town, the magistrates came along, they said, beat them, flog them. And it says when they, they were severely flogged. So Philippi has got a track record of treating Christians pretty brutally. And of course, you know, Paul and Silas, they were responsible for somebody's business going completely defunct. So there would have been concerns about these Christians that ruin your business, etc. So the reputation of Christians in Philippi would have been challenging as well. It would have been a worrying place to be as a Christian in Philippi. And Paul, in the context of all of this, of his own worry of all his troubles and the troubles of the church, is writing these words, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. And we can read that and think, well... When I hear those words, it's all very well, but do you know what's going on in my life? If only you knew the things that I've got legitimately to be anxious about. It's one of those, it's easier said than done scriptures. Do not be anxious about anything. But Paul gives really practical advice. He doesn't leave us there. He gives really practical advice on how we can receive and enjoy the peace of God. Verse 6, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In every situation. Every. Now, I think there are some times when we think that God's really interested in hearing about the big prayers, the prayers about church and revival or world peace and these big things. But the things in our lives, the trivial things, we perhaps don't bring to God so regularly. But Paul is saying here, if it worries you, bring it to God. If it's causing you anxiety, it's not trivial. Pray about it in every, every situation. God is, care, God is concerned and cares for every situation that worries you. He's there with you in it. And he wants you to name it and call to him about that situation. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety. So we've heard the word every. Now we have the word all. Cast all your anxiety onto Jesus because he cares for you. And I love that the use of that word cast. It's like casting your nets on the other side. It's literally throw all of your anxieties onto Jesus. Just throw them onto him. Whatever that is that's causing you worry, throw it onto him. If you're worried about a job interview, throw it onto him. If you're worried about finances, throw them onto him. If you're worried about what seems to be trivial, cast it onto him because he cares for you. In every situation, pray to him. Um, the words from the song, and I don't think we're going to be following with this song today, but the, the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You remember that, What a Friend? I'm not going to try and sing it. I've been in the choir many years ago, but I'm not going to put that upon you but the song what a friend we have in Jesus and those two sentences oh what peace we often forfeit oh what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer carry everything to God in prayer now Paul here makes a distinction between prayer and petition so prayer is is generic term for any talking to God it's not necessarily petition 
It's just praying to God. It could be, as we've heard this morning, as Rich did, praying prayers of thanksgiving, delivering, uh, you know, speaking the word of God over us, praying the, the truth of God over us. That is, that is prayer. Prayer, I think, is like marinating our hearts in the truth of God's word. And, you know, chefs talk about marinating, and they, when they talk about marinating things like tough meat, like beef, they say use some acidic-based content like white wine vinegar uh, or lemon and lime juice, because what it does is it breaks down the toughness in the meat, and then the flavour in the marinade, you can see people smiling here, because you've probably got something marinating now, the flavour in the marinade just, just goes deeper into the sinews of the, of the meat, and it absorbs right into it. And, and, it, and it becomes part of it. And this, this lump of meat suddenly becomes this flavoursome, marinated piece of meat that's ready to be put in the oven or the barbecue. And I think prayer can be like that sometimes. We need to marinate our hearts, which, let's face it, can get troubled and can get uh, cynical and can get, get hurt and pained. We need to marinate our hearts in, in prayer. And prayer with thanksgiving. Father, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are for me and that you're not against me. Father, I thank you that you are with me. I thank you that you're in me in this situation. Jesus, I thank you that you've gone to prepare a place for me, that you cleanse me from all of my sins. Jesus, I thank you that you have not given me a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. That's prayer. That's prayer with thanksgiving. It's not actually asking for anything. It's just praying, Lord, I I thank you. And as we do that, we marinate our hearts. And as we do that, our hearts become strangely at peace because we're suddenly finding the truth is beginning to influence our hearts and our minds and our thinking. Thank you for my home. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my work. Thank you for hot water. Thank you for food. Thank you for what seem to be the trivial things. But thank you, Lord. I'm thankful. I'm going to focus on you and what good you've done for me. Now, petitions are are, are different to that. If we think about a petition to government, get 100,000 signatures, it will be discussed in Parliament. We're asking for a higher power to intervene. We can't do this on our own. It's helpless. We need a higher power to do something. And that's what a petition is. That's what Paul is talking about here, about a petition. And we see some uh, examples of petitions, really, in the book of Psalms, is full of David's petitions, And we we read through and he cries out to God for help. He's asking God for help. He's asking for mercy. Answer me when I call to you. He says, give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly for you. Have mercy on me. Lord, for I am faint. Heal me. Lord, for my bones are in agony. You are my God, have mercy on me. Lord, for I call to you all day long, bring joy to your servant. Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. David's petitioning God. He's saying, Lord, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your love. I need your peace. I need your victory. I need your deliverance in this situation. Lord, I'm petitioning you. I I cannot do this on my own. Lord, please intervene. And we know what it is to petition God in that way. Lord, I need your wisdom. Lord, I need, we need your favour. Lord, your healing your provision. Lord, this situation is really worrying me. I have no peace. I'm ruffled inside. Lord, please take this situation. Please intervene. 
And when we do that, when we pray and when we present our request with God in thanksgiving, things happen. Things, things happen. Our hope rises. Our faith rises. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. As you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our faith and our hope rises as we petition and pray in this way. And God responds. Now, as we know, he doesn't always respond in the way that we expect him or want him to respond, but he does respond. And we read that example in 2 Corinthians where Paul has this thorn in his flesh and he's petitioning God, remove it, remove it, remove it. Three times he says, I cry to the Lord, take this away. That's the answer Paul wanted for this thorn in his flesh, whatever it was, to be removed. Did God hear his prayer? Yes, he did. He petitioned to God and God heard and God responded and he said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. So, so God responded to Paul, not in the way he expected, but he responded and he gave him the answer that he needed. God responds when we petition to him. So never give up praying. Never give up petitioning and asking God for a breakthrough in that situation or for, for the salvation of a loved one or and the, and as, as we had the blessed series. Let's not stop doing that. Let's keep on praying and petitioning God because he hears and he answers. So a practical, practical uh, first tip there from Paul and uh, instruction from Paul on how to have the peace of God reigning in our hearts. Paul also talked a lot about the importance of peace with each other. Peace with each other. In verse 2, he's imploring these two ladies in the church, Judea and Syntyche, to settle their differences. And key to enjoying God's peace is pursuing peace with each other. Is pursuing peace with each other. Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with each other. And again in Romans 14, let us therefore make every effort... To do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort. Now that implies a proactivity on our part. A making every effort. In verse 5 we, we read that Paul identifies a particular characteristic that we need to, be, to have in our hearts in order to be at peace with others. He says let your gentleness be evident to all. Your gentleness. Now I know that when we hear the word gentle, we can think, well, that sounds a bit soft. And that sounds a bit, you know, I'm not sure about gentleness. You know, I'm quite happy to have the power of God. And I'm quite happy to show love. But I'm not convinced about gentleness. Now, the thing is, is that um, gentleness is a characteristic of Jesus. Jesus was gentle. In Matthew, we read that Jesus came into the, the town riding on a donkey and it says he was gentle in spirit and we might think well it's a dog eat dog world out there you know you've got you've got to look after number one it's a tough world out there there there's not really place for gentleness but Paul here is saying to the church let your gentleness be evident to all now gentleness is an interesting uh, condition that I think sometimes we might feel gentle towards certain people other people we perhaps feel less inclined to be gentle towards. 
Um, last year, the RAC recorded a, a three-year high in breakdowns related to potholes. Nearly 4,100 vehicles just for the RAC broke down uh, damaged shock absorbers, broken springs, broken wheels, buckled wheels as a result of potholes on England's roads. And the government has recently increased funding for potholes to 100 million. And I'm sure we've all experienced, those that drive have all experienced uh, the pain of hitting a pothole hard. If you cycle, I don't know how you manage, frankly. Uh, but potholes are very uncomfortable. They cause a lot of discomfort. Gentleness is like a shock absorber in our spirit to the potholes that we come across in our relationships with people. Let's face it, sometimes in life we, we hit potholes in our relationships with people. People say things that we don't think were very nice. Maybe they don't say things we think they should have said. They're short with us. Sometimes we face situations where we really struggle and have to forgive others because we've been offended. Sometimes it's intentional on their part. Sometimes people are not even remotely trying to show you gentleness or be peaceful towards you. But gentleness is like a shock, a, a shock absorber in our spirit that enables us to absorb that harshness and absorb the difficulty in life. And Paul here is saying, let your gentleness be evident to all. So the question is, how are your shock absorbers this morning? How's the shock absorbers in your spirit this morning? Are they absorbing those difficulties and those potholes that you do come across? Are like shock absorbers, shock absorbers, they, they do run out. They do become less effective. They can become rusted. They can become rigid. And then suddenly when they're rigid, when you go over a pothole, you really feel it. Because there's nothing to take that give. There's no softness there. There's no gentleness. And you feel it. And that can happen to us in life. You know, as, as the pains in life, they become, our shock absorber come. So I'd say, how is your shock absorber this morning? And do you need to receive more of an ask, Lord? Lord, I need to show gentleness. Now, we know that Jesus at times was righteously angry. We know at times you read and you think, that turning over the tables, that didn't look very gentle. But the overarching characteristic of Jesus was gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And Paul is saying to this church in Philippi, to receive the peace of God, you need to pursue peace with others. It's very hard to have the peace of God if you're in unforgiveness and bitterness and causing strife with other people. So you need to ask the Lord to help you in this. As the philosopher Plato once said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. So we looked at peace of God, peace with God and peace with others. I want to touch now on another area which is peace with ourselves peace with ourselves now for some here this morning I think this is a really important point and I'm preaching to myself here as well very much peace with ourselves we can have peace with God and cast all our cares upon him and petition him and we can seek peace with others and our shock absorbers are being refreshed and we're determined to be gentle with others but we also need to have peace with ourselves See, Paul talks of the peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts. Now, ruling means that our hearts are subject to God's peace, God's shalom, God's well-being, God's, God's peace is ruling. We have hearts that are at peace. And Paul talks about our hearts being guarded. And guarded implies that they need to be protected from other things ruling them. 
So he's talking about the peace of God ruling in our hearts, but other things can rule in our hearts. And clearly fear and worry and anxiety is one of those other things that can be the dominant ruling in our heart. But there's something else that can rule in our hearts as well, and that is condemnation, self-condemnation and criticism. Many years ago, I remember a comment from Colin Urquhart. He's an international speaker and author of many books, including My Dear Child and The Truth That Sets You Free. And I I remember hearing this quote from him. It was was years ago. And he said these words along the lines of this. He said, self-condemnation is one of the most common and crippling challenges facing Christians today. He's written many books on the subject. And um, it kind of, you know... Resonated. We all, we're all familiar with Philippians 4, uh, verses 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything by prayer and petition. It's a very familiar verse about the peace of God in our hearts. It is the most highlighted Bible verse in Amazon ebooks. So it is, it's a very well-known verse. But there's another less well-known scripture about our hearts being at peace and at rest. And it's in 1 John, verses 3 to 19. And it says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest or at peace in his presence. How we set our hearts at rest and at peace in God's presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So we have in these two scriptures, two opposites. We have a heart in Philippians 4 that is ruled by the peace of God. And we have this reference in 1 John of a heart that condemns us. And I think sometimes a real barrier to us knowing and receiving and having hearts ruled by God's peace can be self-condemnation, hearts that condemn us. And I'm no psychologist, but it's pretty obvious that if you're struggling with a condemning heart, it's going to be difficult to receive and dwell and live in the peace of God. Now, Reverend Will Van de Hart, he's pastoral chaplain at Holy Trinity Church Brompton in London, and he's author of a book called The Guilt Book. And in his book, he references Professor Paul Gilbert OBE. And Professor Paul Gilbert is a clinical psychologist and author of the book The Compassionate Mind. And he says these things. In his book, he observes that self-guilt can trigger shame and self-attacking thoughts such as, I am a cheat and a bad, unlovable person. And he contrasts this self-condemnation with compassion and says that self-warmth develops from sympathy for your own distress and gentleness, that word gentleness again, towards your needs. It arises from enabling yourself to feel compassion from the inside. And Jesus said, love your neighbour as you love yourself. Show your neighbour love and compassion. It's very difficult to do that if you don't have love and compassion for yourself. And, and Reverend DeHart from HDB goes on and he expands on this concept in his book and he says, growing in self-nurture not only connects deeply with God's love for you as his forgiven child, but also increases your ability to offer compassion to God's other children. So how is your compassion today towards yourself? Do you have that heart in one John, a condemning heart? Or a compassionate heart. Sometimes a lack of peace may well be because we have to put things right with God. We have to repent and seek his forgiveness and find his pardon. And some here today, you might need to receive God's pardon for the first time. 
Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been justified through faith today? You sit here today justified through faith, not through our own works, but through faith and receiving his pardon and his peace. And we have that once and we continually need that. We continue need to receive his justification and his peace and his pardon. And if God does not condemn you, in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. If God does not condemn you, how can you condemn yourself? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word all again, all unrighteousness. Not most, but all. So we have to know that we are pardoned to receive peace with God. We have to know that he has done it and he's taken it away, all of it away. There's a wonderful story on the Alpha course this week. Um, It's fantastic that so many people were here in Ellie. My wife was down here and she was telling me when she came home, she was telling me about uh, the Nicky Gumbel video that was played. And in that Nicky quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said, and he's talking about the whole topic of forgiveness from God. And C.S. Lewis says that when we receive God's forgiveness, it's like a recording of our life is wiped completely clean. So we have peace with God. We receive peace with God. And we're at peace ourselves because we've received his compassion. So... To conclude today, wherever you saw yourself on the worryometer, whether you saw yourself as a two or as a five or as a ten, God wants you to have a heart that is ruled and reigned by his peace. Yes, you will have troubles. Yes, there will be things to worry about. But when we bring them to God in prayer and thanksgiving, when we petition him, when we seek peace with others and when we have compassion towards ourselves, we receive his forgiveness. We can receive the peace and the shalom of God. We can live in the, the peace that God has towards us. That the Prince of Peace is peace towards you and we receive his peace that quiets our troubled hearts. I want to finish with a passage from Matthew's Gospel that I'm sure we're all familiar with. And just picture the scene now. It's a stormy night. We've had Storm Eric, so it shouldn't be too difficult to picture this scene of a storm. Uh, but there's a storm in, in the Sea of Galilee. And it's rough. Winds are coming in, battering against the boat. Matthew 14 says, Later that night... He, that's Jesus, was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. The wind died down. Peace. Do you ever feel like Peter with the storms around you? With the waves, with the wind, with all of the worries, the anxieties. You're fixing your eyes on Jesus, but then you looked around and you saw the waves. Life came in and interrupted your gaze, and you began to sink. As you begin to sink, as Peter cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand. Immediately. Yes, we'll have storms in life. The waves and the wind might be buffeting against you right now. But cry out to Jesus. He's walking on the water. His supernatural peace is above your situation. And he wants you to plug into his peace. He wants you to reach out your hand. And he wants to hold your hand and fill you with his peace and fill you with his supernatural peace over the situation that you can have a heart that is guarded that is ruled and that is reigned by the peace of God Amen Amen